David Benner, he's a Christian psychologist, he says that we were made from love for love. And I like that. We're made from love for love. And I think that's his way of reminding us of what Ev was teaching last week, that the goal of the Christian life, that whenever, whenever we ask the question like, what is this all about? What are we doing? What's, what's the point of all of this? Like, the ultimate goal, there, there, are lots of, there are lots of ways that we could answer that question, but it's all aimed at relationship with the triune God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. To, to be in relationship with this God of love is what we were made for, to be in a relationship of intimacy with him. I wonder, I wonder how often you think of that, how often you call that reality to mind that like, the whole reason for your existence is actually to, to know and be known by the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This is what you were made for. <clears throat> but I wonder, do you want intimacy with a God who might come into your life and just start flipping over tables? Do you want a closer walk with the Jesus who behaves like this? And that can be kind of threatening, can it? Might sound a little bit scary. We like, I think, the Jesus who brings wine to a wedding. Who doesn't want that? We're not so sure about the Jesus who brings a whip to the temple. Right? We, we love the Jesus who, whose mission is to bring us joy. But what about the Jesus who brings judgment? The temple that Jesus walks into had four divisions. Uh, the most central division was the Holy of Holies. And, and as you know, uh, only one person could go into that place one time a year, the, the high priest. And um, only after making a sacrifice. Well, after, after that innermost part of the temple, there was the court of Israel. And do you know who got to go into that court? Sorry, say again. Israelites, but not any Israelite, only the men, yeah, they were old school, only the men got to go into the court uh, of Israel, only, and only circumcised Jewish males could enter it. And then, outside of that, there was the court of women, and that was for Israelites who were women, Jewish women. Uh, and then the outermost division, also the largest area of the temple, do you know what that was? The court of the Gentiles, yeah. Um, this was for everyone else, basically everyone who wasn't Jewish. And this court was humongous. It was like 35 acres. I don't know what comes to mind when you think 35 acres. Um, the Christ Pres property here, it's three acres. So that includes like the front lawn, the backfield, the manse, the playground, the parking lot. That's three acres altogether. So 35 acres. That's a pretty, pretty big space. Um, when Jesus enters into the temple, he enters into the court of Gentiles, and here's what he would have seen, like, just chaos. Thousands of people, thousands of animals, people buying and selling animals for sacrifices. The Jewish historian Josephus says that in AD 66, over 255,000 lambs were sacrificed during the religious festivals, and all of those lambs would have been um, bought and sold in that court of Gentiles in that 35-acre area. And so that gives you like some idea. I mean, that's a lot of lambs, 255,000. 
That gives you some idea of just the, the chaos uh, that was going on. Just this huge scale uh, operation, massive, chaotic. Jesus walks in and he sees this and he doesn't like it. And his response is fairly extreme. But maybe not extreme in the way that we sometimes imagine. Like, maybe we imagine Jesus losing his cool here. Like, he walks into the temple and just kind of flies into this crazed rage, screaming at people, flipping over tables, chasing animals around with a whip. I think what Jesus is doing is much more deliberate and intentional. Um, Like, this is not, I don't think, unhinged anger. This is focused judgment and justice. Like Jesus isn't caught off guard by what he finds. He actually goes to the temple for a purpose. I mean, think about it. He takes time to sit down and make a whip. Like someone who's just overcome by rage doesn't do that. He sits down and he makes his own whip. This is a planned demonstration. It helps to know some history. Um, Jesus was not the first person to cleanse the temple. Years before, um, I don't remember off the top of my head, I want to say 160-something B.C., uh, a guy named Judas Maccabeus, known as Judah the Hammer, raised up a Jewish army, and he went straight to the temple, and he purified it. He cleansed it, and what that meant was that he got rid of all of the um, Gentile oppressors, got rid of all the, the foreigners, got rid of all the pagan statues that had been brought in, just wiped them out, reclaimed the temple for the Jews. And it was actually expected that when the Messiah came, this would be like on the Messiah's to-do list, near the top of the list. Um, If you're someone around uh, the turn of um, the millennia and you want people to think that you're the Messiah, you've got to cleanse the temple. You've got to do this. This is like... uh, it's just expected of the Messiah that they would do it. The way that they would cleanse the temple was by getting rid of the outsiders. And in this way, he, that, that was like um, liberation from oppression. Cleansing the temple, when the Messiah came and did this, would be an echo of Israel's kind of defining story when God went down and liberated his people from oppression in Egypt. I mean, it's not a coincidence that When does Jesus go to the temple? What's at hand? Passover. I mean, this is supposed to call liberation from Egypt to mind. There's a prophecy in Malachi that says this, The Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire. So now Jesus suddenly appears in the temple as a refiner's fire. But notice what he does. It's very different from a Judah, Judah the hammer move. See, what Jesus does is he goes <clears throat> and he doesn't clear the temple of the Gentiles. See, he clears the temple for the Gentiles. He says, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. In Mark's gospel, he says, is it, is, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. 
See, when Jesus goes to the temple, he's not trying to get rid of outsiders. Uh, he's actually bringing judgment against a system that has kept them out, that has obscured and distorted for them the worship of the true God. If you're going to find God in the temple and instead you find like this chaotic marketplace, that's confusing. Um, that makes it hard for you to encounter God. <clears throat> God's vision for Israel was that it would be a place of blessing to the nations. The temple was to be a place of like multicultural worship, not ethnocentric nationalism. But instead, the Father's house has become just this chaotic marketplace, more like a shopping mall than a sanctuary. And so Jesus is enacting God's justice and judgment against the temple so that the Gentiles can stay and pray and find God. <clears throat> But Jesus is doing something even more radical. Um, he's disrupting like the very foundations of the entire sacrificial system. Because what is he doing? He is flipping over tables. He's flipping over the tables where all the animals are sold and he's dumping out the money and he's driving the animals out with a whip. And in order to understand how shocking this is, we need to step back and remember what the temple is all about. So quick, like biblical theology of the temple. <clears throat> um, in the Bible, the temple is a place where like heaven and earth overlap and intersect. It's where God's space and our space come together. It's where God dwells and where we can dwell too. Uh, it's like this cosmic crossroads. Um, and so the first temple in the Bible, when you think about it, is actually like right there in the very opening chapters in Genesis 1 and 2 in the Garden of Eden. The Garden of Eden was this sanctuary and paradise. Why? Because that's where God lived. That's where God dwelt. He lived there um, with humanity. This was the Father's house. It's just the garden. It's creation. And the result of the fullness of God's presence was shalom, like total flourishing, fullness of joy. I mean, Psalm 16, which we read for our call to worship, tells us that at God's right hand are pleasures forevermore. Like, this is what you and I were made for. But remember how the story unfolds. We reject God's grace and we distrust his love. And the result of that is a real relational brokenness. Like that intimacy um, is fractured. It's lost. We become alienated from God. And not only that, but we become estranged from one another. And so Adam and Eve in the story are exiled from the garden. And, and you remember that detail that we talked about fairly recently, maybe a month ago, when they turn and they look back toward the garden, they're, they're moving east of Eden, they turn and they look back and they see a flaming sword moving every which way. And remember that um, this is a sign pointing to the reality that the only way back into the garden, like the only way back to the Father's house, into God's presence, involves judgment and justice. If you want to get back into God's presence, you've got to face the sword. And you know, good luck with that. <laughs> because it's on fire. And it's fast. And it's like zigzagging every which way. And so Adam and Eve, they see it and they don't even try. right? Like they just keep walking. And, uh, it, which is the wise decision on their part. Like they know that they would be destroyed, that they would be consumed. That they would be torn to pieces. And so would you, and so would I. And you might think, well, that's, that's so harsh. Like, uh, you might think, if God is love, why a sword? 
Like, why not just a, a big welcome sign? Welcome back. Welcome back to Eden. Why not that if God is a God of love? Why judgment and wrath? This month, one of the books I'm reading is um, a little but profound book by James Cone called A Black Theology of Liberation. He wrote it in 1969, so like about a year after King was assassinated. And he points out that um, like if we don't have a clear view of God's justice and wrath against evil, it's probably because we're like really out of touch with the needs of the oppressed. Uh, Here's what he says. He says, is it possible to understand what God's love means for the oppressed without making wrath an, an essential ingredient of that love? What could love possibly mean in a racist society except the righteous condemnation of everything racist? Most theological treatments of God's love fail to place the proper emphasis on God's wrath, suggesting that love is completely self-giving without any demand for justice. And then a little later, he says this. This is a great line. He says, a God without wrath does not plan to do too much liberating. It's right, isn't it? I mean, and if you doubt that, read Exodus. And the entire story of God's people is God liberating his people through justice and judgment. A God without wrath doesn't plan to do much liberating. I mean, you see his point, like a world of injustice and oppression like desperately needs the flaming sword. Of course, usually we want that sword to fall on other people. We don't want it to fall on us. But if we're consistent and if we're honest, like, don't we have to say that we want God's judgment and justice to come against evil wherever it's found? Even when it's found in us? Like, isn't that maybe the world's only hope and our only hope? Well, that's what all the animal sacrifices in the temple are actually about. They're about the sword. Um, the sacrifices reminded God's people that idolatry and injustice, like failing to love God, with all of who we are and failing to love our neighbors um, as the beautiful people created in God's image that they really are, like, that is a big deal. It's like a life and death kind of big deal. And so, the, and so the sacrifices of the temple remind God's people that the sword has to be faced, that the only way back to the Father's house is through judgment and justice. <clears throat> and Jesus... He walks into the court of Gentiles, and he sits down, and he makes a whip, and then he gets to work, like, driving out all of the animals. And so, like, for a brief symbolic moment, he brings this entire religious system to a grinding halt. The people want to know by what authority he does this, and that's when Jesus makes this extraordinary claim. He says, He says, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And so what they hear him say is, like, destroy this huge building that has taken, you know, how many hundreds of people, 46 years to build, and I'll raise it in three days. And they just think, well, that's insane. Can't be done. 
Uh, but Jesus wasn't talking about the building. He was talking about his body, which is astonishing because what that means is that Jesus is claiming to be the temple. He's claiming to be the real place where heaven and earth overlap and intersect, where God's space and our space are one and the same. Like, he's claiming to be the place where God's glorious presence really dwells. He's saying that everything that God's people are looking for in the temple are right there to be found in him. Right there. It's, it's like he's saying, you want the glory and the power and the presence of God? right here, Jesus says. says, You want to dwell with God, to live with God, to be in right relationship with God again? I'm right here. And so, I mean, this puts him on a trajectory to die because he's saying this place, which was like the the center of Israel's life, religious, cultural, political, saying it's no longer necessary saying all of these animals that you kill year after year, they're no longer necessary. He's saying, I'm necessary. Everything you're looking for in the temple is right here in me, Jesus says. It's amazing. So he's talking about himself. I wonder if you can believe that. That like, everything that you're really looking for is there to be found in Jesus. All the deep, true longings of your heart are there to to be found in Jesus. He's talking about himself. He says, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. They didn't get it. The disciples didn't get it until later. But now, reflecting back after the resurrection, they can see that Jesus was talking about himself. He was talking about his death and his resurrection. So that's interesting, isn't it? That Jesus gets a whip, overturns the tables, dumps out all the money, drives out all the animals, and then he starts talking about his death and his resurrection. What's going on there? I mean, he's saying not only is he the true temple, but he's also the ultimate sacrifice. You know, the prophets of the Old Testament, they're always holding up this incredible promise for us that someday <clears throat> the, uh, the presence and the glory of the Lord will um, cover the entire earth. Like the whole earth will be full of his glory. I mean, and what is that saying? It's just saying that the whole earth will be a temple, that the whole earth will be the Father's house. They, and, and we see this um, in Revelation, right? When... when Uh, the new Jerusalem descends, and when God himself returns. But in order for that to happen, someone has to face the sword. The only way back to the temple is to face the flaming sword, and Jesus is saying, I'm the one to do it. He's saying, I'm the one to do it. Dale Brunner translates, zeal for your father's house will consume me as zeal for your father's house will tear me to pieces. And see, it's all set in motion here. It's like Jesus so wants to bring us to the father's house that he is consumed. 
that he is torn to pieces. Um, it, it's not so much that he's flying into a crazy rage. No, he's very intentionally setting himself on a trajectory that will lead to his crucifixion and death. Zeal for his father's house consumes him, and he's destroyed. And then three days later, he's raised from the dead. And so, family, um, I want you to see that Jesus is committed to bringing you home. He's committed to bringing you to the Father's house. Um, like, he is, he is committed to restoring this joyful relationship of love that has been uh, torn and broken. Like, he, he lives for us and he dies for us and he's raised for this. That the intimacy that was lost is the intimacy to be restored. <clears throat> we might wonder about a Jesus who flips tables. Like, is this really the kind of God that we want to be in a close relationship with? <clears throat> um, another book that I'm reading this month is one by George MacDonald. He pairs well with James Cone. He's an old Scottish writer and theologian. And he says something that I've just been chewing on, and I think it's really profound. I should have gotten this on a screen so you could chew on it with me. But just listen to what he says here. He says, I am losing my <clears throat> voice. Sorry. He says, God is against sin insofar as and while we and sin are one. God is against us, against our desires, our aims, our fears, our hopes. And thus, he is always and altogether for us. Like, this is good. Um, should I read it again? All right. He says, God is against sin. It's against sin. Insofar as and while we and sin are one, God is against us, against our desires, our aims, our fears, and our hopes. Thank you. And thus he is altogether and always for us. And if I'm understanding what he's saying, and I'm like 99.9, .9 sure I am. I mean, he's saying that because God so loves us and is so committed to being for us, as long as sin is in our lives, he's going to be a God who flips tables. And we should welcome that. And we should want it because the table flipping is for our good. And so let Jesus flip some tables in your life. You know, one of the amazing realities of the New Testament that is held up for us in the New Testament is that as we're connected to Jesus, we become the temple of God, um, a place where God dwells. <clears throat> C.S. Lewis says this, he says, imagine yourself as a living house. Are you doing it? Imagine yourself as a living house. 
God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps, you can understand what he is doing. He is getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew that those jobs needed doing, and so you are not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts and, doesn't, and that does not seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he is building a quite different house from the one you thought of. Throwing out a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage, but he is building a palace. He intends to come and live in, live in it himself. <clears throat> I wonder, family, like what tables does Jesus need to come flip in your life? Maybe Jesus wants to flip some tables in our relationship with outsiders. Like, maybe we just don't have relationships with people who feel far from God, with people outside our little Christian circles. Maybe our lives, for all intents and purposes, have become like the court of the Gentiles, where it's like there's, there's nothing about us that would actually help people come closer to Jesus, but instead we're repelling people away from the presence of God. Maybe Jesus wants to come flip some tables in the way we relate to outsiders. I mean, one, one question just to start thinking about is like, is our, our, are our neighborhoods and is our city, is this metropolitan city of Richmond, is it um, more characterized by justice or less because we're here? Because we're here, because God put us here. Is the city of Richmond... Um, a juster place, or is it more full of injustice? I don't know. I mean, that's an abstract question maybe, but I think that's a good question for the church to ask. Maybe Jesus wants to flip some tables in your relationship with God's people. Like maybe you've grown disconnected from Christian community and Jesus is calling you back. Um, I know I should look at the camera when I say this. I know some of you are tuning in online, and I know that some of you do that because um, you really have to do that right now in this season. But I know some of you do that because it's just more convenient and more comfortable. And I wonder maybe if that convenience and comfort is one of the tables that Jesus wants to flip. Maybe Jesus wants you here. I wonder if um, you've become cynical about the Christian community, cynical about the church. That's one of the things that I had to wrestle with during my sabbatical because I realized that I had grown um, calloused in a lot of ways toward the church and, and cynical about it. And I think that that was a table that Jesus needed to flip as he reminded me that like, um, as broken, as messy, as frail, as, as full of faults as the church is, like, um, no one else, no other group is proclaiming the good news about Jesus. No other group is out there pointing others to the goodness of Jesus. I think maybe, maybe that's something that Jesus is inviting you away from, that cynicism about his people. Maybe Jesus wants to flip some tables in your relationship with God. You know, in our story, he says, don't make my father's house a house of trade, and I wonder if, if there are ways that you have turned something that is meant to be like deeply relational, um, deeply personal, profoundly full of grace, 
into something that is mechanical and transactional and conditional? Like, is your relationship with God more like a market or is it more like a home? Do you relate to God more as a boss who you have to please and jump through hoops for or do you relate to God more as a father who is good and who loves you? See, maybe Jesus wants to flip some tables in your relationship with God. The point is, I don't know. I mean, I'm just up here imagining and speculating, but I bet you know what tables Jesus wants to flip in your life. And I bet if you don't know, I bet he would show you if you asked him, if you dare to ask him, if you dare to say, Jesus, come flip the tables that need to be flipped. I bet he would do it. And it might make you so uncomfortable but it would be his love for you. So let Jesus flip some tables, family. And then last, let Jesus set a table for you. Let him flip some tables and let him set a table. You know, in the Old Testament, only one person could go into the Holy of Holies once a year. And only after making sacrifice for sin, that's the high priest But when we get to the book of Hebrews, we read something that, if we're paying attention, should just make our jaws drop. And the author just kind of throws it out there. It says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place, and then he just keeps going, (laughs) as if he didn't just say, like, the most amazing thing that's ever been written. He's saying that now, because of Jesus, like, the door to the Father's house is just wide open to us all the time. It's never closed. You never need a secret knock. You never have to beg and plead to be let in. It's like God is just open to you because of Jesus. You can have confidence to enter in, enter the most holy place. Um, because zeal for his father's house consumed him, he, he brings us in. He brings us home. He opens the way. Like, not just for one man to visit the father's house once a year, but for all of us, any of us who want to just live there, anytime, all the time, moment by moment, day after day. And so now, as Paul tells us in Ephesians, we have access to the father in the son by the power of the Holy Spirit. It's just ours just a gift. And so Jesus sets a table for us in the Father's house and the doors are wide open. Believe the gospel in Jesus' name. Let's pray and then we'll come to the table.